0: And welcome to Tech Shock from Parent Zone, the podcast that looks at the impact of digital technologies on family life and unpicks the issues for parents, teachers, professionals, and policymakers. I'm Vicky Shopbolt, and I'm the founder and CEO of Parent Zone. And I'm Geraldine Bedell,
1: executive editor of Parent Zone. This week, we're really thrilled to be talking to Professor Amanda Third, co-director of the Young and Resilient Research Centre at Western Sydney University. Online resilience is a subject dear to our hearts. Um, Vicky co-chairs the Resilience Working Group at UKIS, the UK Council for Internet Safety. So, Amanda, we want to talk to you about that and also about your work on the internet and young people's mental health, and most recently, a big project you've done for the UN on children's rights online. But I wanted to start off by asking you about the theme of your recent book, Young People in a Digital Society, Control Shift. You argue that what you call a control paradigm has grown up around young people online the emphasis on keeping children safe, which you see as often controlling them, actually hasn't really helped them.
2: Hi Geraldine. So what we did in that book was we really tried to start from children's lived experiences of using technology and what became really clear to us is that, um, they're very concerned about some of the risks that they face online, but they don't always match up with, um, with the concerns that adults might have, whether that's their parents or their teachers or other significant adults. And, um, and in a sense, what we detected in, um, in their narration of the ways that they engage online is that they they had begun to talk in a double register to adults. So they have been receiving really great online safety education, and it's clearly been really, really effective because when you talk to children, they can tell you a list as long as their arm and possibly longer about all the terrible things that might happen to them online and all the things they should do to protect themselves. But two things, Geraldine, Um, on the one hand um, this is producing in them you know we're teaching them to speak in a double register in the sense that they know all the things that they should do but they don't necessarily implement them in the ways that adults would expect them to often they are they, you know, they, they can talk the language of online safety, but the practices that they put, on, put in place in their everyday encounters with technology look quite different to the kind of idealised ways that we present to them of protecting themselves and taking precautions and ensuring they can engage responsibly and safely. And so this is what we call the Santa Claus effect um, in our work. So I, I hope that this is not a um, spoiler for anybody on the call, but when children find out that, um, that that Santa's not real, what they often do is they pretend or they participate in the fiction for a long time after that becomes obvious to them because there are real material benefits for doing so. Um, and so, and, and and the same thing happens with online safety is that children pretend to the adults in their lives <laughs> that they are participating in this online safety fiction, but really their practices look quite different. Now, this is not to say that they're being unsafe online. Actually, many children are taking really effective steps to protect themselves. Of course, some children are more vulnerable online than others, and it's really those children we need to pay most attention to. But in general, you know, children are thinking about safety. They worry about being, um, you know, exposed to threats online and they're taking steps to prevent those. But we're not teaching them to have honest conversations with us about what happens online. So there's a kind of double speak that emerges from these, um, from this educational impetus, which focuses primarily on the risks. And the second thing that I would point to about this really strong emphasis on the risks is that. Um, whilst children can tell you all the terrible things that might happen to them online, they are not able to conceive of all the wonderful benefits that they might access by engaging um, with digital technology. Um, And I think this is a real shame. It's a missed opportunity. We're not doing quite enough to open up their thinking and encourage them to really... um, embrace technology and think about how they can use it creatively and constructively uh, to shape both their individual futures and also the collective future um, of the next generation. So so I guess that's really what we were trying to pick up on in this book, this idea of the control paradigm is that, you know, um, often we sort of think about children as, um, you know, as individuals that we need to... You know, we take our responsibilities as adults very seriously. We we need to craft their futures. We need to guide them. Um, but what we need to also remember is that children need to take risks in order to learn and develop the skills um, that that they need for the the digital future. Um, and so, it's not about eliminating risk and controlling the child. It's about enabling them to take. Calculated risks in supported environments, and giving them space to grow, learn, and develop their own languages for thinking about um, for thinking about what it means to be online.
0: I wonder how do we start to get past that safety dominated, controlling way of thinking about children online. I mean, in the UK, we we are. Um, just introducing or going through the process of introducing new legislation that will include a big emphasis on age-gating the, the internet. And I just, I wonder if you think there's a better way that we could go about helping children to navigate the internet safely.
2: Yeah. So look, I mean, this is a really thorny question, Vicky. Um, and and I think I would start by saying that often we we think about children's safety and we focus on what we need to do to children to enable them to participate safely online when in fact All of the research shows, and indeed all the insights from practice also show, that we need um, whole of community, you know, holistic, systematic responses to ensure that children are not exposed to serious threats of harm online. So this means that we need to be thinking very carefully about appropriate legislation. It means that we need to be thinking about how teachers need to be supported to integrate technology safely into the classroom whilst also maximising the benefits that it might bring to the classroom. I think we need to do a much better job, and this is where the work of organisations such as Parents Zone are really important, but we need to do a much better job of talking with parents rationally about what the real risks are, their likelihood, their prevalence, and the steps that they can take uh, to, to support their children to engage Uh, constructively and we also need to be thinking about the responsibilities of technology companies you know many of those companies are trying to take real steps towards securing children's safety but it can also be said that we're not there yet there's still a long way to go to make sure that that those entities are are fulfilling their obligations to children as users of the internet Um, you know and I think little things like um, you know I, I, I think I've been t- thinking a lot lately about terms and conditions for example. Um, you know on the one hand we teach children that consent is absolutely critical to healthy relationships um and and we have all these programs embedded in schools and other organizations to to you know assert to children that that healthy relationships require processes of consent and agreement and so on and yet we present children when they go online with absolutely impenetrable terms and conditions I mean terms and conditions that are truly uh, even you know beyond the uh, beyond the comprehension of of an average adult Um, and I worry about the ways that we inadvertently um, counter all of that good work to teach children about the importance of consent by by simply you know requiring that they um that they participate in these sort of false processes of of consent or inadequate processes of consent so i think there's like there's a lot of um there's a lot of thinking to be done vicky there's a lot you know there's a lot of work to be done but i also think that um One of the key things that we need to do more consistently is really to, at the same time that we talk about the things that can go wrong online, is to encourage children to explore, to create, to engage with one another, um, and to have honest conversations with the people around them about what they're doing online, why they like it what they are worried about and how they can respond to those concerns. I think I think we've got to get much more truthful about how we engage with children on these issues.
1: One of the things that I personally grapple with is the difficulty of explaining the resilience approach to young people online. It's very hard to communicate Um, the scare stories are so much more potent. I think you had a situation in Australia where there was a mobile phones panic and that led to blanket banning of mobile phones in schools. How do you think we can sort of break down the abstraction of resilience and, and make it kind of understandable both to young people and children and also to their parents?
2: Yeah, look, that's a really, that's a really great question. Um, resilience to my mind is, is, as you say, a very complex concept. There aren't clear predictors for which children can be resilient at which points in time, uh, you know, in, in the course of an average day. It's not an easily predictable thing. And I think this is the thing about resilience is that often we put a lot of pressure on children to be resilient in the face of adversity. But actually a really core part of being resilient is taking the knock, recognising it as a knock, and then um, I guess developing ways to deal with the difficulties that that presents, right? So resilience is not a state of being. It's not a kind of, you know, it's not something that all of us can be all of the time. Resilience is a skill. It's a process. It's actually, you know, it's it's about um, experiencing adversity, learning from that adversity, and taking those the learnings from that experience into the next experience of adversity. So it's a cumulative process. It's about ga- gathering skills and energies. Right? Um, yeah, and I think. You know, one of the things that we know about resilience is that, well, the difference between a young person who can be resilient and one who cannot is often the strength of their social relationships. And so I think what we often do is we think about resilience as an individual capability when, in fact, it's not just an individual capability, it's also a deeply social or relational capability. Um, and and so I think we also need to think about resilience in terms of collectives, right? You know, what does it mean? You, you can be a much more resilient individual if you live in a much more resilient community, right? So how can our communities really get, rally around um, children uh, to support their, their resilience and well being? You know, of course, resilience comes from this idea that um, it comes from engineering, right? The idea that once the metal or some other similar material is put under pressure, when that pressure is released, that the material will bounce back. It's called homeostasis. And um, and I think this is the kind of way that the idea of resilience has really been taken up in in. You know, in our practice around supporting children's resilience, it's about you know we think about it as this capacity to bounce back. But I'm really taken by the idea that resilience is a much more transformational capability, right? It's it's about um, it's about being able to, as I said earlier, take the learnings and apply them in a future setting. So it's quite okay to be upset when you confront something nasty or untoward online. Um, but what what you want to do is re- be able to reflect on that and be able to do it better next time around. Um, so I'm really sort of, I'm really invested in thinking about uh, resilience in those kinds of terms. Your research is
0: based on user-centred participatory research. I'm curious, how do you get young people involved um, in talking about resilience? And and you know, tell us a bit about the projects that you've been doing. I wonder if there are any lessons that maybe parents could take from the way that you guys do it.
2: There's a lot of room for us to have more productive conversations around these things. Um, And I think what we, you're right, we do take what we call creative and participatory approach to working with children to really understand their experiences. But what we often find is that we're asking them about things that They've, they have really intimate knowledge of, but they often haven't had space to reflect on. Um, so rather than using your kind of conventional research methods to work with children, um, you know, like your interviews or your focus groups, those kinds of things, what we do is we try to set up a series of creative activities that enable, that create spaces for children to really explore what concepts mean to them, and then you know, develop their thinking. We probe them. We we ask them to go a little bit deeper. We you know, we ask them, and then what and why, and, and these kinds of things. Um, but we try and open up these spaces in inside workshops that are, are you know, creating an opportunity for children to really um, reflect on the issues and develop their ideas and articulate them, and. So we use all kinds of different methods, um, whether they might, you know, they might be, for example, um, doing drawing a map of all the places that they use technology in their everyday lives and then mapping how they feel when they're using those technologies by putting a smiley face here or a sad face there or whatever it might be. And we talk them through these things. Um, they might interview each other. They might make a collage. They might... Um, write a poem sometimes they write letters to the president you know all of these kinds of different strategies but we aim to just throw children into a bit more of a creative space in order that they can as I say find their own way um, of of articulating what the issues are for them and how what action they think would be would meaningfully support them to to engage online so I think and then through this process you know what we often find is that children come back to us and say oh i never thought about that in detail and and um and i really felt like i had an opportunity to um to think through things but also that it was really nice to be heard and i think this is where maybe if there's anything in this for parents maybe it's helpful but um you know is that i think if we can create more spaces to genuinely be with children um, and to, and to talk on their terms about the issues that they confront that we can often be surprised by the wisdom and the insight that they bring to those conversations. Now, I know though, I'm a parent myself and I know that that sounds like a really crazy thing, like when in between unpacking the dishwasher and, um, you know, making school lunches and folding the washing, am I going to have these conversations <laughs> with my child? But, um, But, you know, they don't have to be sort of long dedicated um, uh, conversations. I think, you know, I think one of the things that we know about children being safe online is that routine and regular conversations are really important part of creating an environment in which if your child feels unsafe online, they can reach out to you and talk about what they're going through and workshop it with you. And this can happen in the drive, you know, between home and school or on the walk to the shop to get the milk or whatever it might be. But just, I think really, um, cr- yeah, as much as possible, creating these very small moments and setting those as a bit of a standard in your relationship with your children for really talking, you know, talking about what matters to them.
1: It's very nice to hear someone else um, talking in the way that we talk about parents because I think very often what happens with these conversations is either that parents are seen as kind of police officers, um, as you say, controlling what children are doing online, or else they're seen almost as an obstacle Um you know there is a there is a sense in which parents are kind of you know antithetical to their children's interests, and I wonder you know you talked about resilience being about communities as well as as well as about families, and I wondered how you sort of break through those kind of conventional ideas of parents.
2: Yeah, look, I think parents have a really tough role in today's society. You know, we, we do, we do get put in these really impossible positions of, you know, we're, we're expected to control our children (laughs) and we're also expected to like create these lovely home lives where children can explore their identities and their talents and grow into these wonderful creative human beings who can save our planet. Um, I think that's an enormous responsibility to place on parents' shoulders. Um, when you know all of us are human all of us are trying to do the very best we can um you know and i think and, and and all of us make mistakes all the time but i think you know it's really important that we make mistakes actually you know going back to the question of resilience it's it's crucial that our children see us make mistakes and they see us recognize our mistakes and talk about where we could have done better um you know this is this is be part of the way that that children learn how to respond when they when stuff goes wrong. So I think we can all give ourselves a little bit more grace, if you like, um, as long as we're trying and we're doing <laughs> really the best we can. It's really important to keep it real. It's really important to keep it real. And I think, you know, parents are the most important role model in children's lives. And if you're doing the best job that you can do, um, you know, that's really setting your children up for the best set of circumstances, right? If you keep it real, you respond as a human being. Um uh, yeah, I think I think this is important for children to see. Children don't go into a moral vacuum when they go online. They translate all of the things that they've learnt in face to face situations into those online settings. So if we're talking to them about what is important, if we're telling them these are the values we, you know, we want to live by, um, this is how you could deal with that or whatever, they take that knowledge into the online space and apply it. Right? There's a real, there's a real crossover. Um, you know, and I think it's every parent's fear that you know the moral framework just goes out the window when a child goes online, but that's not the case. They really take that stuff into consideration and often when they do things that um that might not align with what their parent would think is a good thing they're often doing that knowingly um not all the time but often they are there and they're experimenting they're finding the boundaries and it's actually it's actually okay to let them experience the consequences of those things i mean you know we don't want to tip any child over the edge and into the great cesspit of, of terrible things that can happen on the internet. But we do, we do want them to kind of, you know, take, take little risks here and there and, and experience what, what goes wrong and think about what they can do better next time around. So yeah, but I think that parents really don't often hear that message enough about, you know, the kind of, the way that the face-to-face environment shapes the online environment and vice versa. And and I think just reminding parents about how critical their role is, um, is possibly quite reassuring. I know that I find that reassuring.
0: I want to take us into a slightly different topic, um, which is children's mental health. So we all know that, that young people's mental health is under real strain and Young people in Western societies are, they're less likely to be affluent than their parents, their work prospects might be a bit more precarious, they're worried about climate change, they've got so much um, to be concerned about. And one of the things you've looked at is online technologies and how we can leverage those to help young people's mental health. Um, I wondered where that research has taken you?
2: We have been looking at, um, you know, really how do you leverage technology in the mental health equation for children and young people? And it's certainly true that, you know, technologies can have – you know, potentially very serious mental health implications. I mean, if we get to the stage where someone is gaming regularly for many, many many hours a day um, or whether, you know, they might be exposed to cyberbullying, you know, which is often accompanied by face-to-face bullying, you know, there are lots of ways in which technology might – um might undermine, I guess, children's mental health, but at the same time, I really think there's an untapped potential there to harness technology to support children's mental health and well-being. Um, and here, I would just point to the fact that uh, in the studies that we've been doing. Um, around the world actually, so in um, over 70 countries now, children repeatedly say to us that the key reasons that they go online are for communication, connection, and sharing. And that's followed then by information, searching for information. But these, you know, they really see the... Um, The digital as a fundamentally social phenomenon. It's part of the way that they support and sustain their friendships. Um, It's, it's, you know, it can be a really wonderful pathway to support, particularly for children who don't know how to find help when they when they hit um, mental health problems. So I think, yeah, we've we've really begun to think about, you know, how do you how do you harness that uh that potential uh to support to support children's mental health and well-being um and i th- and and i think it's really clear there's a lot of potential um you know just one example um you know young men in particular don't find it easy uh, particularly in Cultures like uh, the UK and Australia and the US to talk about mental health issues, you know, although I note that Prince Harry's doing a good job of trying to get that one on the agenda for for boys. Um, but, you know, they, there are still very deeply ingrained cultural um, taboos, if you like, around boys in particular talking about mental health issues. And, you know, there are a lot of um, there's a lot of been a lot of work to sort of think through. Well, how do you how do you engage Young men in um, in 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 seeking help when they need it. Um, there's a really wonderful um, online mental health service here for young people called ReachOut.com, um, and and they've done some fantastic work around, you know, um, really trying to develop um, insert pathways from young men's uh, existing digital practices into sort of you know, into support organizations. So, so you know, they um they're opening up spaces to talk about things anonymously um and share experiences and 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 connect with others who are having similar experiences through their their online communities. But they're also sort of um I guess uh Reaching out into the spaces that young men inhabit online, and beginning to nudge them towards um, the kinds of services and resources actually um, that might support their mental health and well-being. So that's just one example of the ways that you know we can really begin to um, tackle some of these really deep challenges around mental health by sort of you know um, reaching reaching young people in the spaces that they're already in and and providing those mechanisms to connect with others and seek the support that they need. Um, yeah, and there's a lot more to say, I guess, about the the ways that mental health um, can be supported by technology. But I think one thing that uh, children and young people often say is that is that um actually the adults in their lives don't Really value that social connection that they find online, and I think it's really helpful to put this in context. You know, we've all all got rose coloured glasses on, haven't we, when it comes to thinking about our youth? But um, I think when I was growing up, um, you know, there were a lot more spaces where children could just, you know, they could hang out on the street, ride their bikes, you know, go off to the playground you know, teenagers hung out at the shopping centre, etc. And gradually, as our as society has kind of progressed, we've closed down a lot of those spaces for children and young people. And but they still crave that social connection. Um, and they can find that online. And that's, you know, when you talk to children and young people, what they say is that it looks to the outside world, to the adults in their lives, like they're addicted to the technology, but actually they're addicted to the relationships that they nurture in those spaces. And, um, you know, and I think that's that, you know, having strong friendships and peer connections is really critical to a growing person's sense of well-being and resilience and so we really need to get better at acknowledging the really important role that digital technology can play and of course acknowledging that there are always you know that those same spaces can turn nasty and undermine but i think we need to really acknowledge children and young people find um solidarity, friendship, fun, all of those good things in in these online spaces and that we have to yeah, do more to to harness those those benefits for children and young people
0: it does worry me that we're we're at risk of starting to do the same thing to the online world that we did to the offline world which is close down those spaces where children can take risks and you know can explore and do things maybe away from the oversight of adults um, but I think when we're thinking about young people's mental health and we've produced a, a an app called Ollie, which is all about nurturing and supporting conversations between parents and children around their mental health. I think it's you know we can see the amazing opportunity that technology can give us for that. But there are the really worrying impacts of technology on young people's mental health that I think alarm parents, things like that addiction message. we have a gaming addiction clinic in the uk and worries about young people experiencing and coming across content that might encourage harmful behaviours like pro ana content or content that talks about suicide. And I just wonder how you balance some of those benefit, risk and harm and opportunity conversations when you're thinking about a topic that's as sensitive and difficult as mental health.
2: I think it's certainly true that, um, that, that these risks do exist and we need to do much more at the government level, at the at the level of technology, enterprise, etc., to really sort of think about what protections we can put in place to prevent some of those um, more pernicious effects of engaging or potentialities of engaging online. I think certainly, um, you know, certainly, certainly, children do. Come across inappropriate things, um, and 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 some of this, some of the content, and children themselves say that you know inappropriate, inappropriate content is a very big uh, concern for them. Um, you know, so there there are these risks, but I think we need to really be careful about the fear narratives. And and again, this is a theme that we really explored back in um, in in um, young people in digital society: the control shift book is is we 're really sort of trying to think about how you how you moderate some of the public narratives around these things um, because I think it's it 's true to say that we 've got lots of examples where the mainstream media are fueling Uh, parental anxieties um, about what can happen to their children online. I mean, the Momo challenge was a really classic example. You know, this Japanese, this ghoulish Japanese anime character um, was apparently being spliced into children's content and encouraging them to take their lives and do other horrible things to themselves. Um, And, and, you know, it, it turned out to be a hoax, but it was a hoax that had very real effects. Right? Um, it was reported across the mainstream media, and it really fueled parental anxieties, um, and indeed the anxieties of, of people in power, like the governments around the world. Um, and I think this panic narrative is is super unhelpful. We're not. It's really important that children know that there are some serious risks that they face online, um, and it's very important that parents understand that. But when we only see extreme cases reported in the mainstream media, it doesn't give an accurate representation of the likelihood that children might encounter these things. Um, and and indeed, for children, what it's often meaning is that they're scared to engage online, particularly girls. This seems to play out with is that, you know, this this. Mainstream media really fuels their reluctance to engage with digital technology because they're they're scared they might be kidnapped, murdered, raped, you name it. Um, yeah, so I think this is not creating conducive environments for children to grow up and seize hold of technology constructively. So what do we do about that? I think I think we have to really confront those fears. I think we have to. Um, I think we have to have, again, ways of talking with parents, teachers and other significant adults in children's lives about what the risks really are and what children need to do to protect themselves from those risks but also how children can assess, you know, how they can keep their fears in check, right, which spaces they can interact in that are going to be, you know, more protected than others. Um uh, you, know, you know, we need to talk to parents about the things that they can do to moderate um, the, the potential of those risks. But we also need to teach everyone what to do when we encounter this terrible material because it is out there. Children do encounter it. They don't encounter it all the time maybe. Some children will encounter it more than others. But, you know, it children will encounter terrible content. And so I think we need to really talk with children about how you put that in perspective, what you do with that experience, right? Um, so I think we really need to empower children to, um, to really, yeah, put their fears in context and have, and, and then when something does go wrong, if it does go wrong, to really put the, you know, to be able to respond constructively, know the steps to take and so on. But really, I think there's a huge responsibility for governments and technology, um, companies in particular, to think more seriously about how we do uh, protect children from some of these things which do have uh, mental health effects.
0: The pushback that we get about resilience, I think, most often is that the resilience narrative really lets technology off the hook um, in some way or another, which I disagree with quite strongly, but um, that's the view, that what you're doing if you're talking about resilience is really putting all the responsibility on the child and not on... The environments that the child's in, i.e., the tech, the tech companies. So, that that's the biggest pushback. I'd say we get.
2: I think that's where we really need to bust open this idea of resilience as a as an individual characteristic. Right? It isn't. It's or it's not only that. It's a collective characteristic. It's a collective kind of thing. Right? You can't have resilience, um, you know, in environments where where you know the technology companies are not taking responsibility or where government's not doing its job properly, right? The, these these things matter to the fabric of, of children's everyday encounters with the digital.
1: Amanda, this has been such an encouraging and um, in many ways exciting conversation. It's so lovely to talk to someone who's so thoughtful and nuanced and positive about online opportunities. And I completely agree that if we are able to leverage technology to help with mental health, for example, that will do quite a lot of the work of adjusting people's feelings about technology. But um, just before we wrap up, um, I wanted to ask you, you've just finished a report on consultations in 27 countries to inform the UNCRC's general comment on the rights of the child in the digital world. Do you see children's rights as a fruitful way of looking at children's online lives?
2: Absolutely. I'm absolutely 100% convinced that, that a rights-based approach to these issues is really critical and, and really helpful. And I'm super excited that the, uh, the UN Committee for the Rights of the Child has recently adopted that General Comment 25 on children's rights in the digital environment. Because what, what general comments do is they provide principled and evidence-based guidance for states You know, governments and NGOs and technology companies and the many others who are influencing children's lives, you know, the steps they can take to ensure that children's rights can be guaranteed in the digital environment. Um, I think, loosely speaking, what the Convention on the Rights of the Child stipulates is that children have three basic kinds of rights. They have what we call provision rights, which are children's rights to you know the fundamentals of everyday life. Um, you know a, a warm bed to sleep in, um, clean drinking water, sanitation, a healthy diet. You know basic fundamentals of children's lives. We also have protection rights, right? So this is about protecting children from all forms of harm uh, and and ensuring that they are not unnecessarily exposed to danger, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and also we have um, Participation rights. And what's intriguing about the Convention on the Rights of the Child is that it actually asserts that children have civic and political entitlements to, you know, civic and political, um, rights the same as adults do. Um, and, and it's, it asserts that children have a right to participate in the decision making that impacts their lives, you know, to participate as, as kind of, um, uh, citizens of the world, if you like. And so these three kinds of rights, protection, provision, and participation are kind of, you know, that's the bedrock of the con, of the convention. And what I think is really lovely is that if you take those three things, you take, you know, basic provision, protection, and participation, um, you know, what, what the convention asserts is that these things have to be balanced, right? You have to be able to advance all of children's rights simultaneously. There's no hierarchy of rights. You can't protect them and, and, you know, knock out their participation rights. You can't protect them so much that they can't participate and you can't just let them rain free so that they're not protected, right? So, it provides us with a lens for approaching some of these very complex questions about how we minimise the risks for children online whilst maximising their opportunities. It's a kind of a framework that we can use to help us navigate our way through these questions. And so for that reason alone, let alone the fact that children have rights and it's our obligation to to support them to realise those rights. But, you know, this this balancing of protection, provision and participation, I think is a really helpful tool going forwards.
0: Amanda, thank you. That has been such a fascinating discussion and what a perfect moment to to draw the podcast to a close, That that really helpful reminder of provision, protection and participation as a framework that can help us try to get those difficult balances right. It's been really lovely talking to you. Thanks, Amanda. Thank you so
2: much, Vicky. Thank you, Geraldine.
0: Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to Tech Shock from Parent Zone. I'm Geraldine Baddell.
0: And I'm Vicky Shockbolt. Listen to Tech Shock every week on a Monday, wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to sign up, download, and please do give us a five star rating so other people can be helped to find us.
2: Have we lost Amanda? Oh, sorry. I no I'm just talking with my mute button on, you know, I had to do it <laughs> once, didn't I?